Jewish Latin Princess, episode 154, Simon Nego, philanthropist and author. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess podcast by Yael. Every week, get your dose of inspiration from the world's most uniquely talented Jewish women and from Yael herself. Seeking profound and practical ways to live a joyful, richer Jewish life? Welcome to Jewish Latin Princess podcast. And now, Jewish lifestyle expert and bilingual blogger at jewishlatinprincess.com, your host, Yael. You're listening to Jewish Latin Princess. Welcome to the show. Happy Monday. It is springtime, really. I am loving this weather. I hope everyone is enjoying the weather. Um, It's definitely a time for change. COVID vaccine. I feel like everybody's jumped on that bandwagon, myself included. And life is feeling really, really good. I'm very happy about, um, you know, just the newness of it all, even though it's just you know, regular life, but for so long, it didn't feel regular at all. I was actually absent from this podcast, unfortunately, since before Pesach, because honestly, when I came back from Pesach, there was so much to take care of. Um, So many changes around here, my team dynamics shifted, and now I'm recreating roles and responsibilities. And I have a new team member. Um, As you may know, I'm also in the middle of a new podcast launch, or rather a rebranding, which is super exciting. Stay tuned for that. But things do move at a slower pace than we often anticipate them to sometimes in business more than anywhere else. I see it. But um, also, I should say that I'm in general involved in an overall rebranding, which has been a super fun process. So that's also taken a lot of time. And that's just all the behind the scenes admin stuff. I mean, there was more. But then on top of that, there's the beautiful client work. Um, you may not know, but um, the first trimester of 2021, I had a tremendous demand for one-on-one clients. Some of you are listeners of the podcast. Some of you are referrals or came to me through social media. And that whole thing put um, plans of doing a group coaching program launch on hold for now. And so I've been coaching a few couples and a few women on their own, both. And it's been really, really good. I actually don't have any openings for that till July, but feel free to reach out if that's something that you might be interested in. And I also, some of you are participants of this, I run a pretty awesome membership. I've been running that since the beginning of the year. It's in Spanish and we do a lot of incredible work there. And that is, you know, something that I'm super constantly involved in. If you want more info on that, just reach out. You can find it at jewishlatinprincess.com forward slash momentum. But for now, that is for Spanish speakers and it's all about financial transformation and growth. And it's been an amazing experience. So we're already eight months into the membership. It started actually last year after one of my launches um, and we finish our sixth month. We're in our seventh, actually seventh month into the membership, maybe eighth. I'm not sure. But that's been going great. And it takes um, some of my time. In the meantime, I do have to say that for all of you listening, there might be something that's interesting to you. And it's one of those crazy ideas that I have in the middle of the night. And I woke up yesterday and I decided that I have to do something about the pain point around investing that I see over and over again with women. As you know, there is an investing gap where on average, women invest less than men. And I've written about this for Chabad.org. Actually, you may have read that. But here's the thing that when we do invest, we do much better. And without getting into the intricacies of why that is, the fact is that a lot of what's holding us back from actually investing is the overwhelm of information around the topic and the myths and invisible scripts that we have in our heads about stock market investing. In fact, I will say that the number one question I receive from friends and students is probably, yeah, how do I actually start investing? And anytime I walk them through the process and we get going on it, they're like, oh my gosh, you really need to teach this to more people. And so I decided that this, like this overwhelm and this lack of information and also like paralysis, like decision paralysis needed to stop. It can't be that we're so empowered and we're so independent and we're not investing and are allowing our money to grow while we sleep. It can't be that we're letting this be more complicated than it needs to be. And I get it. I get that it can be daunting and overwhelming. Believe me, I get it. The financial industry has done a very good job of that. And I'll be the first one to admit it. 
but we end what happens is that we end up doing nothing and that only hurts us. So I will be running a two hour workshop this Sunday, April 25th, the easy guide to stock market investing with zero stress. Five secrets to investing like a pro, even if you've never tried it and you're not earning much money yet. And I would love to have you in there because I know most likely you need it. And my goal with this workshop is to break down investing into simple steps so that you actually get started. And I should say, maybe you don't need it, but maybe your daughter needs it or your sister or your cousin. Like this is information that I feel we all need to get on the same page. We just need to support each other. We need to simplify. We need to break it down and we need to take action. And so my goal is that you will begin. Um, in fact, I'm hoping that by Monday morning, you will be taking a lot of the action steps that I'll give you and implementing. And we're going to demystify the whole thing. We're going to tear apart the myths and get to the how so that you can do it. You can actually start investing and putting this whole investing thing on autopilot so that your money can grow in your sleep and you can spend time and energy doing all the other things that you love to do at ease that knowing that this area of your life is moving forward. Sound good? Okay, so join me on Sunday, April 25th at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. You will love it. I promise I'm not going to make it one of these boring, horrific, full of jargon presentations. This is going to be totally different, totally honest, totally open, totally upbeat, beat, and totally actionable. And I'll tell you, I woke up on Sunday morning actually thinking that I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do this for everybody. I'm going to do it for free because why not? And then as I was putting it together, I realized, one minute, I actually do need to have them to have some skin in the game. Otherwise, I won't do the work. It'll be like one, you know, listening to another audiobook on investing or listening to another podcast, like listening to their parents' advice or their cousins' advice, right? To Like how many times have we heard things that we need to get going but we don't actually get moving on the action. So the workshop does have a cost. It's a whooping $29. And I mean, the return on investment that you will get on those $29, you know it. And I will say, this is not something that I will be offering again. I am not. This is a one-time thing. I just came up with the idea. I know I have to do it. It's not something that I plan to turn into a thing. This is a one-time thing. I'm going to break it all apart for you. So take it now. Trust me, you will want to. You will want to come one day and say, why don't I learn the steps to investing and start doing it already? So take it. I will be answering all your questions and dishing out some confessions about investing that I've never said before to my audience. And you can keep that replay for life. Like even if you can't make it in life, just take it and watch the replay later so that you can finally get moving on this stock market investing thing, which I guarantee you, I guarantee you that I I will simplify it for you and I will make it fun and make it actionable. So head over to jewishlatinprincess.com forward slash investing to sign up and I will see you on Sunday. Now, our guest this week, she's an interesting, interesting woman, Simone Nego. She is the author of the best-selling book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You. She's a wife, a mother to six multicultural children, and a motivational speaker. She's also passionate about philanthropy. And today, Simone and I talk about the premise behind her book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You, the changes we can all be making to improve our world, obviously, you know, it starts with us and only us, but how all of this is related to her book and how she came to these conclusions. And we talk about the challenges of raising multicultural children, the financial implications of choosing to adopt and raise a large family, and how she has navigated that with her children and her trek to Kilimanjaro, one which I'll admit is not on my bucket list, but who knows, after talking to Simone, who knows, you will love this conversation. Here is the lovely Simone Knego. Simone Knegdo, welcome to Jewish Latin Princess. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me here today. I'm happy to have you. I know we're going to have a lot in common. You're you're the mother of a big bunch. I am too. We have a love for not just motherhood, but Jewish community, philanthropy. 
You've climbed Kilimanjaro. I don't know if that's in my bucket list, but who knows? Maybe after this conversation, um, you'll you'll inspire me. But I think we're going to have a lot of fun. I also know that we're going to learn a lot. I want to lead this conversation before we get started with your family life, with your passion for philanthropy. Let's start off with your book. You have a book out, The Extraordinary Unordinary You. What is, I love that title, by the way, what is the premise of the book and what was the impetus for writing it? I suspect they're connected. Yes, they are. Um, You know, I'm very involved with the Jewish Federation. I was doing a lot of public speaking because I was co-chair of National Young Leadership. And so I was going to different communities and speaking. And as I would share my story, you know, people would say to me, wow, you're so inspiring. And I would say, I'm just me. I struggled with the I'm just for for many, many years. And so mm-hmm. um, when they said that, you know, and then they would ask me, you know, have you written a book? No, I haven't written a book. Well, you should write a book. Well, I'm not a writer. Um, so it kind of really, you know, the more people said it, the more I'm like, well, why can't I write a book? Why am I not a writer? Like all of these things, like I'm capable of all of this. So um, and so that's really what I did. And and really the whole story behind the book. It's, it's all about our family. It's about our life, you know, the world as I see it. And it's really about inspiration, realizing what you're capable of and recognizing that the things you do every day matter, mm. that you, ins- you, you have the, you know, ability to inspire the people around you. So, yeah, I guess it goes back to that. You said that just you know, but we're not just like we downplay what you're saying is we very often will go through life downplaying our real impact and our real potential and what really the influence and the the impact that we're having um, around us. And it's interesting because we're living in a world of connectivity and influence. And, you know, it's so much different than the world, our parents and our grandparents. I mean, you see people who are making big impacts and it's easy to think that your little life, I'm little me here, you know, you know, what am I contributing? But you're saying no, (laughs) you are. Yeah, I'm saying no, I'm saying and that that was really, you know, it, it, I took a step back and said, wait, the, the little things that we do every day, truly impact the world around us, the conversations we have, especially now when we're in this time that we we can't truly be together. So this interaction that we're having today, you know, is an amazing piece of what we have. Um, you know, all of these things, the way I interact when I'm on a customer service call, mm-hmm. you know, remembering that there's a human behind every conversation. Yes. It's so important. So important. You say many motivational books will tell you that in order to better the world, you must first better yourself, but you really only need to change the way you see yourself and the world around you will change. I want to dissect that for listeners. Um, first off, in which ways did you change the way you see yourself, Simone? Why, why did that happen? What, what has been the impact of those changes? Yeah, so I, I, I truly believe that, um, that we don't need to change who we are. We, we do need to change the way we see ourselves because we all, we all are unique. We all have these extraordinary pieces already inside of us. And, you know, sometimes we just don't realize it. Most of the time, I think we just don't realize it. For me, you know, going back to the I'm just, you know, I'm just a stay at home mom, you know, whatever I, whatever labels I put on myself for years, um, you know, really affected the way I put myself forward in the world. So when I say that we don't need to change who we are, I'm not saying be complacent, but what I'm saying is that once we realize what we're capable of, once we realize that we matter and that our choices truly impact the people around us, then we're willing to try more things. We're willing to put ourselves forward. We're willing to do more because we realize that it truly is making an impact. You know, it's it's hard to even believe and see you going through this process because I see a mother who's done incredible things. So I could see why when you would tell your story, people would say, one minute, I, we want more of this. Can you write a book? Please help mm-hmm. us out here. But before we get to that, um, I guess my question is, is it, a, is it simple to change the way we mm-hmm. see ourselves? Or is, is it like flipping a switch, a light switch? Or is it, a, is it continuous work? 
it's continuous work. At least for me, it's continuous work. I didn't wake up one day and say, okay, I feel good about myself, about everything in my life. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. There's no perfection, first of all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, it's every day where I say, okay, this is something I love about myself today, or this is something I love about what I'm doing today. This Mm -hmm. podcast is something that I love about what I'm doing today. You know, those, those kinds of things where, you know, we have to, you could just, you have choices every day, right? You can choose to be happy. You can choose to be miserable. And, you know, for me, I have decided that I'm, I'm choosing to be happy and that Mm -hmm. let me look at any little piece of my day that fulfills that need for me, that kind of, that works for me. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not an overnight thing where all of a sudden I say, oh, wow, I love my hair. Oh, wow. Like, you know, you know, I struggle with weight. Do I care anymore? Yeah. I mean, like there's, I still, it's still a constant process and that's called being human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what have been some of the things you've put into practice? You've already hinted at some. So give us some tactics so that people can take notes and say, hmm, I'm going to implement this in my life. Uh, I really started changing the way I talked about myself. So Ooh, the use um, of language is so powerful. Yeah. You know, words matter. And so, um, you know, I got rid of the, I'm just, we also in our house, we don't say I can't because can't means won't, you're not even going to try. Right. So like that's out the window too. Um, you know, I also, I mean, there's so many things. Um, I, one of the biggest things is really when I, when someone gives me a compliment, I struggled with that for years because I didn't see that in myself. So, Mm. I couldn't even say thank you. Like someone would say, oh, Simone, your hair looks amazing. I'd be like, well, it's actually kind of really frizzy. Like, right. why do I have to Why do I have to come back with that? And so now when someone gives me a compliment, they're going out of their way. They don't have to say something positive to me. And they are. So my response is thank you so much. And, you know, and that itself took work to get to that point where I was like, you know what? Okay. You know, they're going out of their way. Like, thank you so much. I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that, that you're pointing out the use of the speech because from a Jewish perspective, I mean, we know the power of words, the world is continuously being created on God's speech. I mean, the, the, the Jewish idea is that words create reality, whether we conceive it and perceive it with our physical senses or not is irrelevant. It's creating a reality. And so we, as as co-creators with the creator are actually creating our own realities around us. So this is this listeners, this is not, um, not small stuff. (laughs) No, and it's not, and and it's not simple work. I mean, again, Mm -hmm. like it really is taking a step back and saying, you know, really looking at ourselves and saying, why, why is my value any less than the person, you know, standing next to me or why, why is my value anymore? It's not. We are all equal in value, no matter what our shape, size, religion, color, everything. You know, and I think that understanding that and and doing the work, again, it's not about being complacent, but doing the work to make ourselves, you know, feel better. Um, and that involves too, like when I talk about like a customer service call, understanding that, you know, when I you know, I can be really frustrated about something, but it's not going to make me feel any better when I get on a call with someone and instantly get angry at them because understanding that there's a human on the line. I have no idea what they're going through, you know, what happened in their day today. And so usually when I make a phone call, I start out with, hi, how's your day going? And honestly, I've had great conversations with people from across the world um, because I'm willing to approach them as, you know, another person instead of just a voice on the line. Yep. I think a key word here is empathy, mm. right? It's Absolutely. Empathy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm now I'm starting to piece the, to piece it all together. It wasn't just a personal struggle for you, but I think you started to see that others were struggling with the same thing. And then therefore I need to write a book, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that we also, um, a lot of times we feel like our struggles that we're the only one that's struggling with something. And I mm-hmm. think that when we put our struggles out there, we realize that we're not alone. I had a moment where, you know, I it was thinking about all the things that I was struggling with. I was on this uh, women's trip actually in Israel. And, um, you know, it was kind of like this aha moment that here I th- here I'm thinking, okay, you know, what can I, what can I, I can't complain about my life, right? I, I have a, I have a great life. This, and this isn't about complaining. This is about 
understanding that it's okay to struggle and it's and it's good to share your struggles because that helps other people. Not only does it help yourself, but it helps other people. And that kind of that moment made me realize that, you know, yes, I do need to put my stories out there, the good, the bad, the ugly, the funny, the sad, all of it, because if I can impact one person, if I can change one person's mind, if I can help one person change the way they see themselves, then I've done my job. Amazing. Amazing. Now you have a passion for philanthropy. You've been, like you said, involved with Federation. You've been a supporter of Jewish Federation of North America. You're an advocate for people to support Federation. What made you get into philanthropy? What what has been the journey like? I, I want to tell you a story. I once read an interview. I think it was the OU magazine that were interviewing this um, Jewish philanthropist, um, the very high level, multi-million dollars. And so the writer asked him, how did you come to you know this level of giving? And he gave an exquisite answer. He said, you don't become a giver of a million, two million, 10 million if you first haven't given the first 10, the first 100, the first thousand, which is I, I wish I, rec- I, I knew who it was, but it's so, uh, so correct on so many levels, which we can discuss. But I'm curious to see what has your journey um, towards this philanthropic past, uh, path, I'm sorry, been like? So growing up, um, you know, we were always involved in our synagogue and, you know, but, but my parents weren't very philanthropic. They gave some. Um, they have very interesting histories that which we might get to later. But, you know, I, I think I didn't see I saw a little bit. We had always had a Sadaka box and we always, you know, mm-hmm. gave in that way. But they weren't really involved in, you know, giving to big organizations. And really what kind of st- what where my philanthropic journey started was uh, we had friends who were leading a young leadership mission to Israel and they invited us to go. Mm-hmm. My husband did not grow up Jewish. Um, he he did not convert when we got married. We knew that we were going to raise the kids Jewish, and that was kind of the focus. And again, I think religion is a very personal thing. Conversion is especially a very personal thing. No, nobody can say to you, this is what you need to do. Um, you have to believe it. You have to feel it. And so we were on this mission to Israel, and he fell in love with the community. He fell in love with Israel. He um, he really felt touched by seeing, you know, what the Jewish Federation, the support that they gave in these different communities. And so when we sat down at the end of um, of the trip and talked about our experiences, what was the most powerful for us, he actually told everybody that he wasn't Jewish and that he... Um, you know, all of these things that he fell in love with and that he felt so impacted that when he um, is when we were returning home, that he was going to start his conversion process. Oh and he did. Gosh. And he um, he studied for a year with our rabbi he, and he actually completed his conversion um, the week before our oldest daughter's bat mitzvah. And so he actually had his bar mitzvah at, at her bat mitzvah. And wow. so, you know, really seeing, you know, the the, the, the power that community has, the power that, you know, philanthropy has, you know, really kind of opened up our eyes. And that was kind of the moment where we said, you know, we, we need to be giving back and this is the organization that we love and this is what we want to do. That's amazing. What a beautiful story. I was not expecting that one. That is so powerful. And, and, and the fact that it became that you had those conversations about, you know, where do we want our money, you know, what is the legacy that we're leaving? Like, what are we really allocating our money towards? Those are big decisions and big conversations to have with our spouses. Important yeah. Ones. Yeah. I think they're very important. I mean, again, we're, um, you know, we, we joked that, you know, we were married for 20 years before he converted. And wow. so, yeah. Right. So that's, that's a huge thing. Um, and so we joked that, you know, once he converted, now we're, now we're a unified front. So, and unified in so many ways, it wasn't that we weren't unified before, but you know, like now when it comes to lighting candles, like he's the one doing this stuff because he worked for it. Like he worked so hard to get to that, that point. But really the conversations about where, you know, where we want to give, what we want to give to, um, you know, 
I think it brings us closer together. I think it's so yes. important that we have have the, that connection as well because it's not just about me. It's not just about him. It is about the legacy we want to le- leave and what we want our kids to see. You know, yep. we, want, we want them to see how important it is, you know, tikkun olam, you know, like giving back to the world, repairing the world. Um, and so that's, you know, it's always those conversations are some of my favorite, actually. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I'm with you. I'm with you. Now, I know that you are a powerhouse in Federation in terms of motivating others to give. Um, what is the secret sauce here? What What have you found that is that makes them tick in terms not just of opening their wallets and their calendars? What do you think is that makes your message so magical in terms of uh, creating that impact? Because there are many speakers who talk about philanthropy, but you happen to be unique. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think being authentic and really, you know, sharing all pieces, you know, when I talk about, you know, again, now I've brought four people into the tribe, right? We adopted our three youngest children and my husband. So like, you know, it's not just about that, but I mean, really kind of sharing all parts of our journey and yeah. what's so important in, in Judaism and, the aspect of community and, you know, I, I, and I, I openly talk about our, our kids adoptions and the work that, you know, Federation does the work that different Jewish organizations do, you know, really they, they help kids like my own, right? Like that to me is one of the most powerful things. Like, you know, we, um, we support, organizations that do the things when I, when I look at my kids, when I, I, I actually traveled on a, um, completing the journey mission. So we went, uh, to Gondar and, you know, brought Olim and it was, it was such a powerful thing. But again, when I was there, I was thinking that I wish my kids when they were little had this support. Um, they didn't, obviously they, you know, they were in an orphanage, but, um, mm-hmm. to see the work that these, you know, Jewish organizations do in other countries to support people, to feed them meals, like is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed, but to hear you speak, it really goes back to the beginning of what you said about, you kept saying at the beginning, you know, about being human, about connecting with another human, that empathy. And even in your answer now, I mean, that is the secret sauce is they see another human that they can really connect with, even if their story is different, it doesn't matter. It's like your, your vulnerability, your authentic, authenticity, um, that's, we're connecting to another human. And that is very inspiring. and very motivational. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, 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 we need to talk about this, the family, because this is such a big part of your story. And I want to highlight for listeners who might not be aware, you're the mother of a beautiful bunch. Like I said, six children. Um, Now they're teens and adults, right, Simone? Yeah. The youngest is 13. The oldest is 24 now. So, right, right. So quite the atypical Jewish American family for its diversity, a diversity that in a sense, I feel like it really brings to the forefront that every family's norm is diversity, regardless of color, race, all of that. You you say something beautiful that I read on your website, families don't have to match, they just have to love each other, and sometimes drive each other crazy. I love that. <laughs> I, I'd love to explore this by first asking you what led you on the path of adoption after you already had three children of your own? The conversation really went back to that. um, There are so many amazing kids in the world just waiting for a family to love them. And that was evidenced by our, our children. I mean, they really, um, they're amazing kids and, you know, they needed, they needed that family setting. Um, How old were your kids when you started having these conversations? uh, The, so our youngest was our youngest, biological child when we, because this was a family discussion, there was, this wasn't, we actually included the kids in the decision-making process because it takes a village, you know, when you already have three kids at home, yes, um, you know, there's, there's positive, there's negative. I mean, there's like, life isn't always unicorns and rainbows, right? Like there's a lot of struggles that go through just raising children in general. So, um, you know, we really wanted to make sure that all the kids were on board. Um, so our youngest was five when, um, actually she was five when we brought Ari home. So she was actually three when we brought Noah home. Mm -hmm. Um, so her, her vote wasn't really, we always did a blind vote. Her vote at three obviously was like, yay, a new sibling. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know, when we adopted Ari, that was, you know, he, so our first adoption was Noah. He's from South Korea and he was a baby. He was four months old. Um, and then we decided, okay, you know, we don't have enough chaos, uh, which we did have a lot of chaos, <laughs> but you know, Hey, why not? And so, um, we adopted Ari from Ethiopia and he was four and a half years old. And that was, um, that was eye-opening. Uh, that was a whole different, you know, obviously country-wise complete difference, but also just a child at four and a half years old. They have memories. They've had a lot of experiences and, you know, kind of working through all that. He is a truly amazing kid. He is sick. He's going to be 17 actually next week. Um, and he's just a good human. Ultimate goal in my life is to raise good humans. Mm. He is a good human. He just is such a, such a special kid. Um, and then, um, when we were in Ethiopia, we actually, um, we brought the girls with us. So they were five and eight at the time. And, you know, we had the opportunity to <clears throat> tour around a little bit, but they never wanted to leave the orphanage. They literally spent their days holding the babies, sitting in the toddler rooms. And oh so gosh. when we left the orphanage, they, they cried because they're like, you know, we want to take all of the children. And I said, well, it doesn't really work that way. All of these children are already have families coming for them, but we knew that we were going to come back again as soon as we were there, because these children, they just wanted someone to love them. They would hold your hand. Anytime you would sit down, they would climb into your lap. You know, they just needed that again, human connection. And so, you know, we, we knew we were going to come back again and, and we did a year later, we, um, we applied for an older boy again and, uh, we received a referral for Millie. She was two and a half years old and, um, you know, her, her process was tough as well. She had Kwashiorkor, the protein deficiency where they had that extremely distended abdomen. And, um, but you know, she's an amazing, you know, she lights up every room she walks into. She truly is an amazing kid. You know, I, I, First of all, I'm, I'm like emotional just hearing you speak. So the the going back to the initial process, because I think for you, it's just so part of who you are and who your husband is. I don't know if you guys realize how unique it is, because it's something that doesn't cross most people's minds. And yet you are like, oh, there are children who need a family. Like, it's not something that other people think about, like, I don't necessarily think that way. So where does that come from? Where did it come from that you're both thinking here we are in the busyness and craziness, which is to raise three kids. And yet you're thinking, you know, we could have more love, we could have more to give, there are people who need us. Where does that come from? It's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's always more than enough love. I think that mm -hmm. we always have, you know, sure. more love to give. And and I, our kids would tell you today, um, you know, we were actually, we were um, at the synagogue. This was actually two years ago. And, and our rabbi was fostering a child. And my daughter, my youngest daughter walks up in front of the rabbi and says, mom, the rabbi is fostering. We should be fostering too. You know, and I'm like, you know, and I'm like, and it was a real conversation. We get it. I said, can we talk about this in the car? Not in front of the rabbi. Mm -hmm. And so we get in the car and she's really, you know, that was like her focused discussion. I said, Millie, like the minivan is full right now. Like we have six kids, like life is really, really, really busy. Um, but, you know, all of them have that kind of, you know, that heart to, to move forward. And I think it's because it is constantly in our discussions of like, well, yeah, when, when we look at how you make the world a better place, what are the things that we're, we're looking at? You know, it's, it's, it's the people, right? How do we impact people? And so that was always um, a discussion and, and going back to, you know, including our kids in, in the process. We, when I talk about the blind vote, I think one of the most powerful moments for me was um, when we decided to adopt again for child number six, and, um, you know, they were writing their answers on a piece of paper. It was yes or no um, our, in our family meeting. And instantly, Olivia writes it. She pushes it to me. And I said, um, wow, Olivia, you didn't hesitate. And she said, mom, we're talking about the life of another child. How can anyone vote no? Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah. So, oh, my gosh. Well, obviously, they come from you. You raised them. I mean, yeah. What can we expect? This is so, so beautiful. Now, not all of it is beautiful. There are challenges, mm. with, unfortunately, there are challenges with raising a multicultural family in America and in Jewish America, although I would love to think the latter is not the case. Can you speak to some of those challenges and how have you, your family dealt with them? 
Yeah, we um, we've had some challenges. I think a lot of it is so much of it is curiosity when people see, you know, our family as a group, when we're, when we used to go out to dinner, obviously we're not going out to dinner right now, but in the days where we would go out to dinner, um, I remember being at a restaurant and this couple just kept staring at us and staring at us. And, you know, and one of the kids was like, should I say something? I'm like, no, just let it be. And actually what happened was, and again, I always, I, again, glass half full. I always try to think in a positive manner. Um, they came up, came up afterwards and said, wow, you just have the most beautiful family. Hmm. That was all they, that, they were staring at us because they thought we had a beautiful family, uh, you know, and then, you know, we had, um, I was actually talking about this yesterday uh, that, you know, I was in the grocery store and I had Millie in the cart and we were waiting at the bakery and a woman came up and said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And for me as a mom of six, every moment is a teaching moment. And she said, um, how much did you pay for her? And instantly, like my stomach was, you know, I was like, um, and I said, um, well, why do you ask? And let me t- let me start by telling you that you you don't pay for children. That's not how it works. And, you know, I could have gotten really angry, but I kind of, you know, again, I want to assume the best, right? Sometimes wow. assume isn't the right word. Um, and and I and I was right in that that decision in that in that she said to me, "Well, my daughter's been trying to get pregnant. She hasn't been able to get pregnant, and they want to adopt. But um, I know she can't afford it. And I really, you know, I want to be able to help them, but I don't know if I can. If I'm going to have enough to be able to help them. So she was coming from a really good place. She just didn't know the words to use. Yeah. Um. So we've had lots of things. We've had, you know, there's 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 some bad stuff. Um, but then there's, you know, we really teach our kids to, you know, really um, self-advocate, really believe in who they are. You know, there's times where it's tough, but I remember uh, once uh, the, so Millie and Noah for, for a while, they were calling themselves twins. Obviously Millie's from Ethiopia, Noah's from South Korea. They wanted to share a bedroom because they're twins and you can't separate them. That was a whole nother story, but they were on the playground one day and one a kid came up and said, well, I don't understand how you could how you guys could be siblings. And Millie's like, well, we're adopted. Duh. You know, (laughs) and, you know, like so, you know, kids are brutally honest, like they just say it how it is. So and then, okay, great. You want to play? You know, so we can learn a lot from children. Oh, my goodness. Really? Seriously. Now that that story with the lady in the grocery store, um, makes me think, um, you know, we'd like to talk about money on the show. I told you that. And so I'd love to ask you the, the economics of raising a family of six are something that would make many at the very least, like reconsider if not just stop them altogether, add to that the adoption process, which is costly in and of itself. So I'd love to know how did this decision play out? From a financial perspective, what were the conversations um, and the financial considerations that you and your husband had to have had as you were contemplating making these choices or making or throughout the process of making them all together. Yeah, there was lots of discussions, even discussions with the kids. Actually, part of that discussion where, uh, you know, Olivia said, you know, how could anyone vote no? Um, the discussion after that was that, you know, we have to talk about college because, you know, with six children, state schools are probably going to be where it's at. Of course, we f- we failed on that. We didn't follow through, but we told the kids that if they have, to, if they go out of state, they have to get, you know, a, a really good size scholarship. So the first three all went out of state, but they all got good scholarships. So that was, mm-hmm. that was okay. You know, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we kind of made that commitment that we're going to be working for a really long time, much okay. longer than we really you know, we would be, we're right now we're 50% empty nesters, which means if we didn't adopt, we would be empty nesters. Okay. But our life would not be full. And Mm -hmm. so when we look at, you know, the financial pieces of it, yeah, we're going to have to work a lot longer. Um, We have to make choices on, you know, we can't take the kids on the ski trip. That just isn't going to happen. You know, that's like a $20,000 vacation for with six children, you know, so there's definitely, you know, discussions of, you know, what, and, and compromises that, that we have to make because, you know, six children are expensive. Um, you know, we also have other things, you know, Ari has dyslexia, Noah 
um, is on the autism spectrum. Um, so like, you know, the th- there's therapy pieces that come in with that as well, but we wouldn't change it for a second. We just figure out how to move forward and, and work with what we have. And again, love is the biggest thing, right? So everything else, um, everything else kind of has, has worked out, you know, definitely we're very careful about how we, how we do things. Um, but understanding that, yeah, uh, we probably added an extra 15 years onto our work life. <laughs> 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 and we're happy with that. We're totally fine with that. Simone, you talked about the trade-off, the financial considerations that you and your husband had to make. Um, and one of those trade-offs you mentioned was private college for the kids. And mm-hmm. you know, some of them have gotten there <laughs> with their own hard work and earned it. But knowing my audience, I know one of the things that's going to come to mind is, well, there's also the cost of Jewish education. So my question to you is, was that one of the trade-offs that you had to make along the way? Or was that something that you were still able to give the children? So it actually wasn't one of the trade-offs. We have one school locally that is a, a Jewish day school. Our older kids went there. Um, it wasn't the right fit for our younger kids because I hate to say it, but there really wasn't any diversity. And you know, we live in a town where already, um, you know, there there isn't much diversity. And then to go to a school where you're the only black kid in the class, um, it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right choice for us. Now, that being said, they still went to religious school, they still went to Jewish summer camps, all of those kind of pieces were still part of the equation. So we definitely didn't anything that had to do with you know, the Judaism piece, we definitely kept that in place. That was still, obviously, that was very important to us, especially because we're bringing, you know, these children into our family. And it was so important to give them that that background, that base um, in their religion. Um, and the school that we have here as well, and it's a great school, I'm not saying anything negative about it, but it isn't just for kids who are Jewish. So it didn't have the same impact. Like when I went to Hebrew day school, it was truly Hebrew day school. We learned Torah, we learned how to speak Hebrew, all of these things where um, it's not exactly, you know, what you picture in your mind in some some other cities. So going back to the challenges that we talked about, there's that's one challenge right there. Like, how, you know, this is not a good fit, even though we want to give them a Jewish education, but it's definitely not a good fit in terms of the diversity that we, you know, that we value so strongly, which then leads us to Kilimanjaro. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as if raising six kids from different countries, um, wasn't enough, you decided a couple years ago that you were going to climb (laughs) Kilimanjaro. I mean, I'm raising four kids, Simone. I'm keeping, you know, I'm growing my career, my business. This is definitely happening at home. I'm climbing it at home. (laughs) I can't even imagine why I would need to do such a thing. And you not just imagined it, you did it. Um, The question is why, uh, perhaps more importantly, what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, so it was a so it wasn't a bucket list list item to start with. It was oh, something okay. that so there's hope that, for me. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It was not a yes. Again, never say never. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it really was. It came around. A friend of ours had climbed it the year before. Uh, he called my husband and said, "Hey, Rob, are you interested?" And my husband, the way I tell the story, again, it's all about perspective. Uh, one, two, three, no, thank you. Call Simone. And so um, he called me, and I said, "Yeah, I would totally be interested. Um, have I climbed anything? No. Uh, I've gone camping a couple of times, but you know what? I uh, this is this was one of those moments where I'm like, I'm I believe in myself. I you know I'm going to commit myself to it. I'm going to train for it." And I'm going to do this. And you give me a challenge mixed with philanthropy. I was raising money for the Livestrong Foundation and I'm there. So yeah, so um, that was a really big motivator. It was called Survivor Summit. I was climbing with, um, there were people on the trip that were cancer survivors, uh, people that were climbing in honor of somebody. And um, it was a really powerful experience. And, you know, the things that I, things that I learned, number one, we all need to take time for ourselves, right? Like it's, it's this self care piece. And for our kids to see that we're, you know, going forward on challenges that truly challenge our, you know, not just physically, but mentally, um, what Time a great management. lesson. I mean, have to prepare yeah. for this. Yes. <laughs> you have to add it to your schedule. Yes, exactly. And I did have to really schedule just like writing a book. It had, yeah. I had to add it to my schedule. It wasn't that, you know, oh, I'm just going to, 
you know, it was scheduled out every day. Um, you know, and so I think for our, my kids to see that, yeah, she's not a mountain climber, but, but guess what? This is what she just did. I think mm-hmm. that was a really great lesson for them. And, and then when we were at the summit, really thinking that everything that I've done in my life brought me to this moment in time, right? The, if, if I didn't have this struggle, you know, would I have gotten to this next step? If I didn't, you know, all of these different pieces where sometimes I think we look and we question, oh, why did that happen to me? Or why did I do that? Um, again, I don't think we need to be so hard on ourselves. I think we need to understand that, you know, when we have when we make a mistake or have a failure, that we figure out how to move forward from it, learn from it, because that's going to make us mentally tough to be able to do things like the Kilimanjaro piece. And, um, you know, really standing up there and and looking back down really made me say, okay, like you can do this. You really can do. If you put your mind to it and you put the work behind it, that's the biggest piece, then you can do whatever you want to do. You are unusual. I, I hope you... <laughs> I hope you know that. <laughs> Took me a long time to uh, really understand that piece. And <laughs> and I'm saying that honestly, because I, you know, again, if that can inspire other people to say, because I never looked at myself, I I, I still, I'm an ordinary girl. I, I, I'm, I wake, I do laundry every day. I cook dinner, sometimes not so great, but you know, like all of these things that make me, you know, I stopped using the I'm just, but I am an ordinary girl and I have but we're also all unordinary. And again, we all have these extraordinary pieces, extraordinary moments that really define, you know, how we feel about ourselves and, and who we are. And that's what I've realized over time. Now, it's interesting because would you say as a child, there were things, you know, if you would, if you think, if you think about your friends in middle school or high school and they look at you now, I often hear people say, of, of course, she was such a blah, 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 blah. She was such a great leader. She was such, she was always up for a challenge. You're like, of course, this person achieved this. If you think back to childhood, mm-hmm. what do you think was, were there pieces already that perhaps they weren't obvious to you, but now if you can kind of like take a bird's view, um, bird's eye view, you could see how, yeah, you became Simone who you are now. Maybe in middle school. So maybe like, so I was still, I was up up in Buffalo, New York at the time. I was still in a really strong Jewish community. You know, I, the friends that I grew up with, that was kind of my whole life. And then when I started high school, um, my parents moved to Florida and we moved to, um, you know, they basically, I was at summer camp and they said that we've sold the house and we're moving to Florida. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I really, that was like a a big struggle for me because so much of my identity was in my Jewish community. And then when we moved to Gainesville, I didn't have that same connection. And I was one of uh, two Jews in my class at the school that I started at. And, um, you know, so I think I stopped, stopped that piece. Like I really, I actually only, I did three years of um, high school and I went early admission to college because I really I wasn't happy. Like I really was struggling with myself there. I didn't feel, I felt, I didn't feel like I didn't, I felt like I didn't fit in and Mm -hmm. that I couldn't find my people like I had before. And it was, I think that piece was a a really hard piece for me. So yes, in middle school, no, in high school. And then again, once I got into college, you know, I kind of like really, you know, figured myself out a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, Still struggled, couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, you know, with my, again, I'm 48 years old. I was having a discussion with someone today that, you know, at 18 years old to decide what you want to do for the oh. rest of your life is like impossible. It's impossible. And, yeah. So, you know, again, I know now, like I'm 48 and I feel like I'm young to have figured it out as well. <laughs> also, I don't so. think you discover it in a classroom. I don't want to knock down yeah. college education, but I don't think it's the best way to discover it. You discover it by working. Yeah. Yeah. You discover it by doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. Family, Simone, what it, for you and your husband, it was just so clear, you know, we really would love to adopt. How did family react? Because again, going back, it's not usual. What was the reaction? Yeah. So, I'll tell you a quick story about my parents and um, my mom. Um, you know, my first response w- would be that uh, 
they fo- they found it unusual at first. Um, my dad, um, he actually grew up in Israel. Even he was there before Israel was a state. So he he was ten years old when Ben Gurion gave his famous speech, and um, so he you know, he grew up in a certain way. He ended up moving back to Germany. He went to medical school in Germany. That's his family had escaped Germany, um, obviously from the Nazis. And, but he, after he finished medical school and his internship, he, um, after he finished medical school, he was given the opportunity to come to the United States. Uh, and I mean, what is, you know, for him, like he's seen so much now, right? He was in Israel, he was in Germany, now he's in New York. And that's where he met my mother. And he always said, when we told him that we were adopting, um, that he could be a grand, a grandparent to any child, he Mm -hmm. didn't it to him, it, it didn't matter. He's like, you know, again, the whole thing about about love. Um, You know, I think that my in laws felt a bit the same. But one of the most interesting pieces. I'm sure they thought that we were crazy, honestly, like looking back at it, like, okay, why, why don't you just have another child? Um, right. Um, and we, we had that question actually from, from many people. Um, but we had actually our friends ask us that question. I'll tell this, this is like an offshoot story real quick, but they were like, you can have another child. Right. And I was like, yes. Um, but we're choosing to now grow our family through adoption. And when we got our referral photo of Noah, um, it's this beautiful photo. He's wearing this white gown and on the photo is a number. And that's how he was identified. And so when we um, sent that picture to our friends, they were like, we get it. We totally get it. We didn't get it before, but now we totally get it. Um, And so that was like a really moving moment. Um, But when Noah came home, I remember being at my in-laws and, um, and this is one of those things where people say ridiculous things and you're like, oh, how do I, how do I help them with this? And the, one of their friends looked at Noah and said, oh, he doesn't look that Asian. He'll be just fine. And I'm like, what does that even mean? You know, like, yes. Okay. He is from South Korea. He looks Asian. He is Asian. And that's what he's going to be proud of. Um, you know, like, so, so I'm sure, you know, my parents were pretty supportive. I'm who knows what the conversations in their house were. Um, but you know, like this is our life. Like we are a package deal. You accept all of us, you know, that's this, that's how we work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they've gotten such tremendous nachas and fulfillment and joy from all of it. So, you know, whatever concerns they had, I am sure they got over it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Pretty quickly, you know, speaking of parents, so often the way you think we think about money, the way we behave around money is tied to what we experienced growing up. Is there a particular memory from childhood that you think shaped the way you view and manage your money? Or was there like an early memory or experience that shaped you financially in that way? Maybe it shaped me in the opposite way. <laughs> um, my parents yeah. were, again, I think because they grew up with very little. Um, my mom grew up in rural Pennsylvania on a farm. Her mom had a sixth grade education. Her dad worked in the coal mines and a local brewery. And she knew she wanted to be educated. So she um, saved up her money, got into college at the University of Pittsburgh, and then got into medical school um, working three jobs. So they constantly were working. Um I remember her and still to this day when she does her checkbook ledger, like it's, you know, it's, if it's off by one penny, it's like such a big deal. I think for me, I'm, I'm maybe the opposite of that. I'm much more relaxed on how, and I'm an accountant, I'm a CPA, but you know, I'm focused on the bigger things. And I think I watched her spend so much time trying to find that one penny that I was like, I'm not doing that to myself. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, let me look at the the bigger things. Um, But they were always very, um, they always wanted the best for us. They would always, you know, they, put us into private school and, you know, what they thought was the best for us. Um, but they were also very careful with their money and, you know, they did amazing things. They bought a beautiful house in, in Florida that my mom still lives in today that again, people that started with zero in their bank account, you know, really, um, worked really hard and, you know, 
whatever, however you define success, my definition of success is happiness, but you know, however you define success, they were very successful. Sounds, sounds amazing. And begs the question, how, are, how do you feel like you're teaching your kids about money? I mean, they are obviously learning just by watching you guys, but what do you think are those key lessons that you're, you're really being very particular about imparting? Yeah, I'm really big on, on not wasting, you know, like there's every day there's something new that comes out and why is it better than what, what they had yesterday? It's not, mm-hmm. you know, so like for me, it's really about, um, finding the value in in what they have, understanding that a portion of whatever they make is going to Sadaka, whatever they where wherever they choose, because it's so important to um, give back. That they've learned uh, obviously through h- how we do things in our house. And that's been a really powerful thing and a great thing for me to see the choices that they make. Um, but really understanding that they don't need all the junk. Like at the end of the day, I, I remember one time that we were cleaning out one of the bedrooms and I was like, this, this is why we, this is why we don't need to buy more stuff. Like you have enough stuff. Um, and I think they get it, you know, they get, they understand that. And, and actually our son who's 24, he is totally focused on saving because he's like, he does the calculations. Okay. If I have this much money in the, in my account and it goes at this interest rate until, and I, he's like, I could be done by the time I'm 40. And I'm like, okay, you just, you know, again, you got it. Great. Uh, there are things that are going to happen in life. That's going to, they're going to push you onto a different path, but Hey, you know, he wants to be part of that fire movement. He's retiring early. This kid. I know. I was like, but you know, the fact that he's, he's looking at it and he's making those choices. Do I want, you know, that $5 cup of coffee or can I put that $5 somewhere else and (laughs) making 7% on the stock market? Yeah. So, you know, again, like good for them. I was like, good. And when you're retired at 40, make sure you take care of me too. Yeah. Because <laughs> you said you're going to be working for a long time. Yeah. That yep. was the trade-off. Yeah. That was the trade-off. For oh sure. my gosh. Beautiful. All right. So let's do some fill in the blanks. This is the part of the show where I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you an open-ended sentence and you're going to finish okay. it with the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Okay. All right. I'm Simone Nekdo and I feel most spiritual when? Hmm. When I'm surrounded by friends and family. Hmm. Yeah. My favorite mitzvah or one I connect with the most is helping others that are in need. I find the sweetest Jewish memory is Mm. I have so many, but I would say uh, Hanukkah from when I was a kid and getting to like uh, the seventh night and uh, getting pencils you know, getting, you know, like when we get to the end, we were like pencils and socks. Yeah. And uh, I always loved the pencils. <laughs> <laughs> were they Hanukkah themed pencils? Always, <laughs> always. always. <laughs> Something I wish I'd learn about Judaism growing up is mm, that the Jewish people are very diverse. I did. I didn't understand that as a child, uh, you know, that I thought everybody Jewish looked like me and that is couldn't be farther the from point. the truth. Right. That's right. When I give tzedakah, I like to give to the Jewish Federation of North America. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, I'm Simone Knekdo. And today I feel most grateful for being here with you. This this part of human connection. Simone, thank you so much for being here. The book is The Extraordinary Unordinary You (laughs) for all of us to learn, which (laughs) I have to say, I read that our mutual friend, Lori Polotnik, a founder of Momentum. She's been on the show. Um, she said it's a must read for every family that wants to be inspired to give more, care more and love more and a true blessing for our time. So we're going to be sure to get our hands on that book. Many There are many more beautiful reviews and endorsements of it. So wherever we're buying books, we're going to pick that up. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us where we can find you. My website, simonecanego.com. Again, the spelling is K-N-E-G-O. I am right now the only one in the world in case someone wants to name their child after me. Uh, But I guess you can't do that right now because I'm still here. Um, (laughs) uh, But I am the only one in the world at author Simone Canego on Instagram, Simone Canego on Facebook and LinkedIn as well, Simone Canego. And if you search me, you can find me. Beautiful. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story and keep doing it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Simone Gnego for stopping by. You can find her book, The Extraordinary Unordinary You on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Thanks so much for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a woman you love. Please uh, send a WhatsApp, a text, share the podcast, share this episode. I appreciate your continued support and your patience. Yes, your patience as we navigate 
the transition into the new show, which is going to be so awesome. The transition is kind of tricky because booking the guests gets kind of tricky and deciding if we're airing, if we're booking them for this type of show or for the new show and, you know, if we're airing them there or here. And that's just part of the production process. So bear with me if things are a little choppy in the meantime. But rest assured that our goal is to bring you the best quality content as we've been doing for four years straight. I have to say I enjoyed very much getting the Starbucks email notifications over the past few weeks saying someone is now happily enjoying the coffee you sent them. It made me really, really happy. So thanks again for participating in the survey about the new podcast. And finally, do join me on Sunday. This is a one-time opportunity. As I said before, I'm not planning on doing this again. Some of it is, or most of it is a small but important part of what I teach in my 10-week program, God Wants You to Be Rich, and in my one-on-one coaching. And it's not something that I plan on repackaging as a standalone again, really. It's, this is a one-off. It's something I feel compelled to share at this time and to serve in this way one time join me on sunday april 25th at 2 p.m central standard time 3 p.m eastern standard time for the easy guide to stock market investing with zero stress five secrets to investing like a pro even if you've never tried it and you're not earning much money yet sign up for 29 dollars only at jewishlatinprincess.com forward slash investing and Keep enjoying the beautiful weather. I hope by you it's really, really nice as it is over here in Texas. And hopefully if you're wanting to get vaccinated, which I get that not everybody wants to do and I respect that. But if you're wanting to get the COVID vaccine, hopefully by now you will have found availability in your city. Good luck with that. And with that, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Jewish Latin Princess Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes. Leave a rating and share the podcast with the Jewish women you love. To access today's show notes, ask Yael a question, or suggest a uniquely talented Jewish woman to be featured on the show, visit JewishLatinPrincess.com.